Um, one more thing before we read this next section. One of the most tragic things about this next section, because we're going to see, it's going to end with the dissolution of the Northern Empire. And one of the most tragic things about it is God has warned them over and over and over again. I mentioned last week uh, a couple of the prophets that were operating. A lot of the prophets came on the scene during this time frame. Um, I, I said last week, Amos was one of them. Hosea was one of them. And so God is sending men to speak to the nation of Israel to warn them that they need to repent. I'll read you just one of these warnings of judgment coming. This is in Hosea chapter 1. So he went and took, you remember God has him marry this woman named Gomer, and that's sort of a visual picture of Israel's rebellion. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to him, call his name, the name of the child, Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's the northern empire. So God sends a warning through Hosea that he's going to judge the house of Jehu. We'll see that in a minute. And that he's going to bring an end to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, every time you read these these messages of judgment in the Bible, what is implied in every one of these messages of judgment? So, for instance, when, I, uh, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, and Jonah's message is short and sweet. The message is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But what's implied in that message? What's implied is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown unless you repent. Right, so implied in these messages of judgment is a call to repentance because when Nineveh repented, what does God do? God shows mercy, God relents, God doesn't pour out judgment on Nineveh. So when God is sending these prophets one after another to say to Israel, I'm gonna bring this kingdom to an end, what's implied in all of these messages? Unless you repent is what's implied. And what you see over and over again is they ignored Every warning that God sends their way. There's a story, um, one of the Confederacy's greatest victories in the Civil War was at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And um, Robert E. Lee called it his greatest battle because what happened is Confederate Army was, I mean, the Union Army was much bigger. Uh, Lee had a much smaller force. The Confederate, uh, the, the Union Army began to get reports that there was a big Confederate force that was swinging around to their right side. But the Union generals disregarded all those reports because they didn't think it could be possible because to, to have a, a, a group coming to their right would mean that Lee was dividing his army and you didn't divide a smaller force. And it would mean that Lee was attacking a bigger army with a smaller army. So they didn't think it was possible. Even the day of the attack, before the Confederates attacked, um, Union soldiers reported huge numbers of deer running through their ranks, running through their camp, and they were wildly entertained by it. But the reason all these deer were running through their ranks is because there was a mile-long line of Confederate soldiers marching their way that had driven all of these deer that had run them through. The, but all of these little warning signs were creeping up, 
And in their pride, the Union generals ignored every warning. And as a result of the ignoring the warnings, they ended up, the results for them were absolutely catastrophic. Well, that, that's what's happening here. God is sending warning after warning after warning of coming judgment. And the nation of Israel ignores every warning. And not only has he sent prophets to warn them, but God has been doing these um, many, M-I-N-I, many acts of judgment where he'll send a plague and he'll send a famine as a sort of warning shot, as a reminder of how fierce God's wrath is. So they'll turn and look back to the Lord. Listen to how it's worded. This is the same time period. Listen to how it's worded in Hosea, I mean, excuse me, in Amos. Listen to this section where God mentions how he's tried to send warnings. God says, also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. What does that mean? If you have clean teeth, it means you don't have food. So it means he sent famine. I sent cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Get this refrain, refrain that keeps getting repeated. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Do you see what keeps getting repeated? It's like God had sent all of these warning shots, and they haven't repented. And so here's the conclusion, verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, when he says prepare to meet your God, what's he saying? Prepare to meet your God in judgment. So all of these little things were meant, it's almost like, do you remember in Jesus' ministry where the crowd comes to him that day and they're all concerned about the, the tower that fell at Siloam and there's those people who were killed when the tower collapsed and there were those people who were killed by the Romans who had gone into the temple. Do you all remember that story? And they're trying to get Jesus to offer some explanation. There was this tragedy that happened and a tower collapsed just randomly and these people were killed. And what's the lesson that Jesus wanted them to get from that? What did he say? That's Jesus' message to him was, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Meaning one of the messages in each one of those tragic events, every single act of tragedy, God's doing a million different things in everything that happens. But one of the things that should resonate in our hearts every time we see some act of tragedy is it's a call to repent. It's a warning call to everyone, to all of us, that God's judgment's great, so we need to turn back to God. But Israel had consistently failed to do that. Okay, so let's see what happens with these five kings. Starting in verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. Not a very long reign, is it? And as he did evil in the sight of, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. 
He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu saying, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation and so it was. Okay, so we've turned back uh, up north to the northern kingdom and this king named Zechariah comes to the throne and it's a short reign. He only reigns for six months. Why does he only reign for six months? Well, the the short answer is a man named Shalom rises up and assassinates him so he can have the throne for himself. But that's that's only the immediate cause. What's the big cause of him being killed? We're reminded of the promise that God had made to Jehu. Do you remember Jehu a while back? Jehu was the man God raised up to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. And so Jehu wiped out the house of Ahab, but Jehu proved to be an evil man himself. And just a quick reminder, so so can God use evil men um, without, I don't know the best way to say it, without being party to their evil? Or let let me reword that. Can God use evil men for his purposes and, and still judge those evil men for their evil. Yes, that's what he does with Jehu. God raises up Jehu to bring judgment on the family of evil, but God doesn't sign off on the actual evil that he does, and God judges then Jehu. And God's promise was that because Jehu was this instrument of judgment, God was going to let the descendants of Jehu reign for four generations. And Zechariah is the fourth generation. So it's like God's judgment for the family of Jehu has been building. It's been building, but he doesn't pour out his judgment because he had promised that they would get four generations. And so it's like, it's like God's promise has been the dam holding back his judgment. But as soon as we get to the fourth generation, God's promise has been fulfilled. The dam is lifted and God's judgment now falls on the line of Jehu. And his son, Zechariah, is killed. And that is the end of the house of Jehu's reign in, in the northern kingdom. And I like this phrase. You get that last phrase of verse 11? And so it was. That, that exact same Hebrew phrase gets repeated several times in Genesis 1 where we'll get, where God commands something to happen, God commands the waters to separate from the firmament, and it says, and so it was. God commanded the earth to bring forth and bud, and so it was. It's like a way of saying, um, God said it, and it happened, of course. He's God, duh. God said it, and it happened because that's what happens every time God says something, and that's what, that's what the, the narrator is saying here. God said Jehu would get four generations on the throne, and that's exactly what happened. He got four generations on the throne, and then his son, Zechariah, is killed. Here's the next one, verse 13. So remember, uh, Zechariah reigned six months. He's killed by Shalom. What happens with him? Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Terzah, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. 
Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then from Terza, Menahem attacked Tishba, all who were there and its territory, because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it. All the women there who were with child, he ripped open. Okay, so we've now moved. Shalom killed a king who reigned all of six months. How long does he reign in his place? A full month. This is the second shortest reign of any of these kings. There was a king way back in 1 Kings named Zimri who only reigned one week. But this is the shortest tenure of any of these kings. He only reigns a month before he's killed by this man named Menahem. And Menahem, you could argue, is one of the most vile kings to come to the throne. Now think about it. We've seen some kings of Israel do some despicable things. You'll remember um, Ahab and Jezebel murdering a man and his whole family because they wanted a piece of property that he owned. That's despicable, right? Well, what does Menahem do? Well, there's a city that apparently doesn't recognize Menahem when he takes the throne. They won't recognize him as king. They won't surrender to him. And so Menahem attacks this city, and when he conquers the city, he goes in and all of the pregnant women, he rips open their stomachs to kill their babies. Now, you would occasionally in the ancient world see uh, pagan nations do that sort of thing. So, so for instance, even Assyria, the, the big superpower, you occasionally see them doing that. It would be done as a kind of psychological warfare, a way of trying to scare everyone into submission as a way of eliminating any uh, potential future soldiers. So they would sometimes do this sort of thing, but even pagan nations recognize this as something extreme. And God highlights in the Bible this as a uh, particularly despicable act. Listen to how it's worded in Amos. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. See what God's saying? He was going to bring a particular punishment on the nation of Ammon. Why? Because they did this horrible crime of ripping open pregnant women to kill their children. And what's so despicable here is we now have an Israelite king doing the sort of thing that even the pagans blushed at. And he's not doing it to an enemy. Who is he doing it to? His own people. These are the people who are under his rule. This, this seems to be an Israelite city. But because this Israelite city won't submit to him, he goes in and commits this absolute atrocity. Right? We, we all, I think there's even something in the natural conscience. You don't have to be born again to recognize that, that children um, should be protected from terrible things, especially the weakest, babies, and especially the most defenseless, babies in the womb. And now you have an Israelite king ripping open pregnant women and killing their babies. So do you see, do you see how low Israel has sunk at this point? 
So God created Israel to be a holy people that would be a light to the nations around them. But instead, it's been inverted. And all of a sudden, Israel has become just like the worst of the nations around them. So let's see about Menahem's reign. Picking up in verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's no surprise. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I should just pause because that keeps getting repeated. So with the southern kingdom, the line that keeps getting repeated is they did not remove the high places. With the northern kingdom, the line that keeps getting repeated is they continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the very first king of the northern kingdom who introduced idolatry, who introduced a false form of worship. And it's like every king that came after him continued in that idolatry. And this king was no different. Now, what are you expecting is going to happen in the northern empire? You have a king committing atrocities against his own people. You have assassination after six months, another assassination after one month. And here's what's happening to the north. Verse 19, Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land. And Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested. Oh, we got cut off. Menahem rested. He didn't just rest though. He rested with his fathers. This is describing the death of Menahem. Okay, so what ends up happening with this king Menahem? Okay, again, I mentioned how internally it's fallen apart. You have kings sinning against the people. You have assassination attempts. And now, for the very first time, you have a strong leader come to the throne of Assyria. He's called here Pul. Um, he's known elsewhere as Tiglath-Pileser. And he was the first king to really get the, the military machinery firing on all cylinders. And he decided he wanted to expand. He wanted more money. He wanted more territory. And eventually he made his way down to Israel. And when Menahem is confronted by Assyria, he immediately kowtows. And he, he comes up with this huge sum of money, a thousand talents. That's 37 tons of silver that he gives to Assyria as a way of paying him off so that they'll go back home and they'll let Menahem stay on the throne a little bit longer. Now, was this generally a good idea to pay off invading nations? Because what do you think is going to happen once you pay them off one time? Are they just going to say, well, we're good now. We'll leave you alone. No, they found a source of income. So it always happened once you paid them off, they would keep coming back. And they would keep demanding more and more and keep demanding more and more. And eventually it, it leads, almost always, there ends up being a battle. But, but Menahem, he's not concerned at all about the future. He's just trying to keep himself in power for the moment. Where does this huge sum of money come from? Where does the government's money always come from? It always comes from the people. So he levies this huge tax 
against the people, the people of means in the land, collects this massive sum of money to pay off the Assyrians, to send them back home, and he's doing all this just to keep himself in power a little bit longer. This is the, the modus operandi of evil leaders. They use their power to get more money to keep themselves in power a little bit longer. Okay, and that's what he's doing with no concern about the future, even though the future of doing this sort of thing is very bleak. He didn't care because here's what, here's what you see with Assyria. They're getting money from all these nations that they're kind of squeezing, and guess what they're doing with the money they're getting? They're building their army. They're getting better weapons. They're getting more soldiers. And guess what they're building their army for? To attack these nations around them. So what's happening is all these nations end up paying Assyria these massive sums of money, which allows Assyria to build a bigger army with better weapons. And the countries that are paying all the money now don't have any money for their own armies. And so Assyria's army is getting stronger as their army is getting weaker. And eventually, Assyria just invades all of these countries with the army that their money had helped to build. Okay, well, that, that's what's happening here. So Menahem tries to pay them off in order to get Assyria to go away. Okay, this, is, this is an evil king who does lots of damage to the nation of Israel.